listeners. Welcome to The Palette, Episode 2, Season 3. The Palette is a podcast where we tell stories and create conversations at the intersection of arts and education. My name is Nima. And I'm Joss. We're your favorite podcast hosts, and we're back. Yeah, we are, Joss. Would you say that Episode 2 is so good that it's out of this world? No, I would not, actually, because I thought we agreed that we were going to refrain from doing any space puns. I know. I couldn't help it. This episode just has me so excited. Well, that's cool. It's exciting, for sure. This episode is on Afrofuturism. Listeners, I know what you're thinking. What? What are you talking about? Did these people just make up a word and then make a podcast about it? Nah, you just aren't up on it yet. But don't worry. We'll tell you all about it. It's going to be a blast. Nima! <laughs> I'm sorry, I saw an opportunity, and I took it. I will not apologize. Space puns aside, let's start the show. For episode two on Afrofuturism, we had the pleasure of interviewing futurist filmmaker, author, dancer, speaker, and educator Yatasha Womack. She literally wrote the book on Afrofuturism. No joke, it's called Afrofuturism, the world of Black sci-fi and Black fantasy culture. Yatasha also wrote Post-Black, How a Generation is Redefining African-American Identity. And she created the digital comic Rayla 2212 and its sequel Rayla 2213, a kick-ass, sci-fi, coming-of-age series about Rayla Illmatic. Rayla is a third-generation citizen of Planet Hope, a former Earth colony that's claimed independence. Clearly something you need to check out. Yatasha's done so much more, too, and we'll get into all of it really soon. Yep, she's basically just this wonderful human being, and she's going to help us unpack this nebulous, awesome thing called Afrofuturism. Let's get started. My name is Yatasha Womack. I am author of the book Afrofuturism, The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture. I'm also author of the Rayla 2212 series. I directed a film called The uh, Love Letter to the Ancestors from Chicago, which focuses on Afrofuturism and dance. And I speak at length about Afrofuturism, the imagination, uh, and identity. Awesome. Very cool. And when did you start getting into your work with Afrofuturism? Well, um, formally, I guess, uh, it was shortly after I wrote the book Post Black. Um, And so I was really looking at identity and other kinds of frameworks. And a friend of mine was teaching a a college course, uh, and she told me she was teaching Afrofuturism. And as she explained it to me, I realized that it was a a work that I'd really been engaged in my whole life, but I wasn't as familiar with the term. So uh, I knew a lot of artists who were working with themes in Afrofuturism, a lot of friends and colleagues who were constantly looking at these ideas about space and humanity and identity and culture and looking at it as a way of life, but also looking at how to express it through the arts. Uh, but they weren't using the term Afrofuturism. So when I realized there was a term and that there was a, a way to kind of categorize these ideas, I immediately you know, looked to find more information and realized that it wasn't so easy to really grasp what Afrofuturism was based on a lot of the work that was out there. Um, So I decided to write a book. Um, And I often talk about a a friend of mine in college who was really into Afrofuturism. I don't remember him using the term either, 
But when he was talking about these ideas, I remember asking him, you know, well, what is this exactly? I mean, you're talking about quantum physics and hip hop culture and uh, you're talking about, you know, advocacy and, and transforming the future. And, and yet you're talking about ancient technologies and African cultures and perspective on the future. It's like, what is this? And he said, I don't know. And years later, I kind of feel like me writing the book was an answer to that um, in the sense of helping a lot of people who felt maybe a little lost or alone or certainly on the fringes um, because they didn't quite know what to call these thoughts that they were working on or these ideas that they were contemplating about time and space, et cetera. So all that to say, I was an Afrofuturist and didn't know I was an Afrofuturist. And, you know, I'm really, you know, glad that so many people are connecting with the work. I also just want to ask you the the obvious, which is if you could give us your definition. Afrofuturism is a way of looking at the future and alternate realities, but through a, a Black lens. And when I'm saying Black, I mean, you know, the African continent, the African diaspora, um, you know, cultures have really shaped uh, by people from those areas. And it's an intersection between Black culture, the imagination, liberation, uh, technology, and mysticism. And it is uh, both an artistic aesthetic in one hand, but it's a epistemology or just a way of looking at the world in the other. And I feel like this definition of Afrofuturism, as you're saying, is very, very broad. Can you maybe talk about what Afrofuturism is not? Does it have boundaries in that way or does it just completely evade boundaries? So there's a lot of things that it is not. You know, it's not something that undermines humanity, right? It's not something where, you know, the, the thought is, well, we're going to go for what's most profitable, but not what helps people. Um, it is not something that divides people. It's not something that uh, puts people in categories where they feel dehumanized. So I guess for starters, that's what it's not. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We also want to kind of think about this idea of time. I'm interested in understanding how this concept relates to past, present, and future. Well, it's interesting because a, a lot of the, the artistic work and the theory um, points to, you know, these concepts of time where it's as if the future, the past, and present are um, overlapping experiences. Um, there's a, a writer and a theorist named uh, Rashida Phillips who runs the Afrofuturist Affair. Rashida Phillips is another Afrofuturism goddess. She's written quite a few books, essays, and short stories. Most importantly, Recurrence Plot and Other Time Travel Tales is a book that delves into Afrofuturist culture and art. And she has uh, a few books on, on Black quantum futurism, which is essentially a way of looking at quantum physics and uh, Black or African, African traditional approaches towards time. Uh, and really kind of exploring those and looking at how people can transform their lives today, how it can be applied. I think one thing that we don't often contemplate when we're looking at time is that the idea of time that we're kind of working with now is really a measurement of time. 
uh, and it's a perspective of time that um, we've just sort of adopted and, and chosen to live with, but it's not the only take on time. So, you know, in our, our world today, we look at time, generally speaking, as moving forward. It's very linear. Um, but within Afrofuturism and in a lot of, you know, places and cultures and, and et cetera, they looked at time a little differently, uh, where time was cyclical, um, where the future and the past were kind of, you know, merged into one. Uh, maybe they looked at time and potential time. And so, so today, the perspective of time that we live with is really one we've been, been socialized around. I think for a lot of people, when you think about that, it just makes you look at a lot of constructions, you know, in our society as things that we've, again, have been socialized around, but are only realities because we've all agreed to make them a reality for us. And I know the way that we're talking about time is getting very flexible right now, but I see very far future and then maybe more so like near future. And can you talk about the role that Afrofuturism plays in maybe the closer future, like the next 20, 50 years? Like how is Afrofuturism helping people today maybe reimagine a time that's not so far, far away? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, the cool thing about the imagination is that you come up with ideas and you know, there's things that you might want to see in the future. And then the next step is, well, how would I bring that about? So to imagine and feel comfortable imagining worlds and places or inventions or concepts, even for fun, um, you know, immediately gives people some sense of agency mm. and wanting to do something to bring these things about. And one thing that I often say is that um, for many people at various times, you know, the imagination wasn't always encouraged. You know, the imagination uh, and resilience, um, you know, kept people who were in really dire circumstances inspired. It helped them to move forward. It helped them to, to feel uh, limitless in what could be otherwise dire circumstances. And, you know, I think that that's one lesson about the power of the imagination and, and, and its ability to facilitate resilience amongst humanity. I'm curious about if we could just be a little more nuanced about the difference between having a vision for your life, something that you might want, a goal, and then working to achieve it, which mm -hmm. obviously does take imagination and, and vision, mm -hmm. and the type of imagination and world creating that someone might use to escape or fantasize, mm -hmm. which can be a way of relieving pain in, in a very, you know, real life and can also right. just be play. No, that's, that's right. I mean, one is um, a visioning towards something you want to create. One can seem like it's an escapism, but depending, it could also be a refresher to help people then dive back in to do the work they need to do that, in one sense, could tangibly create uh, the kind of life they want to live as well. So it's, it's, it's an interesting nuanced question that you asked, and I'm glad you asked it because, you know, sometimes people will say, well, you know, what does cosplay, you know, have to do with changing the world? Cosplay? 
that sounds fun. Do you mind defining that for us? Sure, Nima. Cosplay is a mashup of costume and play. It's basically where you dress up as a character from your favorite video game, movie, or book. It started in Japan. Do you think I could cosplay Beyonce? I don't see why not, and I will always encourage you to follow your heart, Nima. Aw, thanks, Joss. You know, what does listening to music, you know, that's inspiring have to do with changing the world? And part of the reality is you don't know. <laughs> True, absolutely. A lot of that inspiration um, comes through play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a reason that tech companies sometimes have playrooms where you can play games and, you know, because it's that sort of curiosity and that sort of release that can just spark new ideas. And I'm hearing a lot of what you're saying um, echoed in an interview that I saw you give where you're talking about your work with imagination and play and Afrofuturism in schools. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about working with students and this concept? Sure. Um, I actually had a lot of fun recently working with uh, a group of teenagers over the summer where we were looking at Afrofuturism and dance. And, you know, I grew up as a dancer. I'm a cheerleader for life and will forever encourage people to dance. Awesome. (laughs) Because I think it's personally transformative. Uh, But in working with the, the students, the young ladies I was working with, um, we really had an opportunity where they could do a lot of freestyle dance and maybe write about certain mythologies or take some space phenomenon that they found interesting and write about it and then either create a dance in honor of it or to kind of symbolize it or just do some sort of freestyle dance that they were inspired by, right? And then we would discuss it. And, you know, we did this with mythologies. We did this with, with, I said, space phenomenon. And what I found was that it gave the students like a really nuanced understanding of identity and their role, not just as a a human being in the world, but as like a a person in the universe. That was really cool um, for me, you know, because they saw the, the future they saw a very tangible relationship between history, the present, and the future. And something about the activity of dance, uh, whether they were freestyling or they were choreographing pieces themselves, really, uh, I would say, was a, a free moment for them, a free moment of expression to feel like they had some sense of agency in terms of how they wanted to express themselves around these ideas. So. So that was personally exciting for me to really witness and to see their growth, you know, just over a summer. That's incredible. Is there any specific theme or theory or conversation within Afrofuturism that deals directly with identity? Because I think it has to do, you mentioned cosplay, for example, and it's kind of a similar issue of um, reimagining your identity in the real world of today, but also being able to fantasize and change and morph and maybe pretend and put on a costume and be someone else for a little while. The interesting thing I think that Afrofuturism just helps to underscore is that a lot of our lives are about this negotiation between what images or what identities are placed upon us and then who we are. And sometimes those identities align 
and then sometimes not so much. And I think now what's really sort of fascinating because in the, the American context, you have more people of color who are able to express themselves um, because we have, you know, relatively newfound freedoms, right? You know, it, it challenges all of these boxes. You know, we talk about in Afrofuturism, something that most people know, but don't always think about, but that race is a creation. And it's a, a technology that was created to justify the transatlantic slave trade and this caste system that kind of came out of it. And I think we are, as a society, at a space where people really want to know, they want to explore themselves, you know, they want to push beyond these invisible limitations that are, are placed around how they're supposed to express and who they're supposed to be. And speaking of identities, is Afrofuturism for everyone? Like, do you think that they're is a space for everyone in Afrofuturism, or is it for a specific people? I think it's for everyone, uh, because we're all human beings. And it's about looking at these perspectives from other human experiences and looking at how can this inspire me or help me or help with my world building. Um, when we go into this whole identity conversation, you know, many times... People are socialized around what they're supposed to be interested in and what they're not supposed to be interested in, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're told how you're supposed to think versus how you aren't supposed to think. And engaging in other ideas just helps to expand us as people. I, I want to talk about your filmmaking and how you got into filmmaking. So I went to undergrad at Clark Atlanta University, and I was a journalism major. And a lot of my focus uh, when I was there was news. And when I graduated, I took a lot of um, screenwriting courses in Chicago. I was working as a journalist uh, and then went to Columbia College for grad school, where I studied a lot around arts, entertainment, and media management. And I, I wanted to write, you know, films. And you know, there were a lot of changes going on in, you know, technology at the time. And I said, wow, okay, let me explore more around independent filmmaking. And so my first film was one called Love Shorts. Uh, it was just a series of shorts that we kind of weaved together in this feature film. And we were screened at the American Black Film Fest and at the Black Harvest Film Fest here in Chicago and several other places. Uh, after that, I was hired to direct a film called The Engagement, which was produced by a Chicago-based filmmaker as well. Um, and it was about a, a Jewish family and a, an African-American family, a Jewish-American family, rather, um, and the families merging uh, at an engagement party. After that, you know, I did a, a lot of writing and kind of developing of projects. Um, but in addition to that, you know, as I developed this interest in, in science fiction and Afrofuturism, you know, I began to do other explorations. So I've written... Uh, a script for a film called Bar Star City that's a feature film I'm working on. And the Love Letter to the Ancestors piece is an experimental dance film um, that's 15 minutes. And, and we've screened uh, around the world, actually. I mean, we were at the um, Afrotopia Festival in Bristol, England. Uh, we screened at the Real Time Film Fest in, in Lagos, Nigeria. We were at Afropunk. Um, we screened at the Ibera Americana Festival in uh, Hogin, Cuba, as well. So 
um, and of course at, at Black Harvest here in Chicago. And it's it's really been a, an exciting journey with that project because again, you know, it's an experimental project around Afrofuturism and dance, but I think it's inspired people to to, I don't know, maybe want to dance or at least look at interdimensionality, you know, um, as it relates to, to dance and expression. And, you know, I'm really excited and proud of the project. That's fantastic. As you should be. Those sound amazing. Well, thank you. Can you tell us about Rayla Ilmatic? Yes. So Rayla 2212 um, is a, a book, ironically, that I... I came up with while I was working on the book Afrofuturism. You know, I had began to have these other ideas um, that merged other contemplations I had had about reincarnation and and uh, interstellar space travel, and a lot of it kind of evolved into this Rayla twenty two twelve story. And it was funny because I wanted to tell a story about a woman who lived in the future, but I didn't want her to really have to deal with some of the issues we're dealing with today, or at least feel limited by them. And so I kept pushing the character further out, like 50 years into the future, 100 years into the future, and then it's 200 years into the future, and she's on another planet. And you know, then there's this world-building dynamic. So Rayla is a, a, a war strategist with a, a group of rebels who are trying to turn their former Earth colony uh, that was once utopian, turn it uh, back into the, the place that their parents had envisioned it to be. But I, I launched the book uh, in its print version at Chicago Comic-Con. And we had artwork and poster work that went with it. And it really kind of introduced me uh, increasingly to kind of the, the Comic-Con world. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, we loved talking to you, Yatasha. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure sharing with with both of you. I'm uh, glad that you're excited about Afrofuturism and sharing it with your audience. Absolutely. And the connection with dance also was particularly inspiring. Yeah, we got really lucky with you because you have your hands in so many different facets of Afrofuturism and art. Thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you, and have a great one. Stay inspired. I'm so glad Yatasha mentioned her love of comics. Yeah, I'm so happy that we got to have her on the podcast. She's so insightful about the topic of Afrofuturism, which is a great primer for this next segment. If you're listening from the Harvard area, you've definitely passed a little window that has the words, The Million Year Picnic, printed on the windows. Maybe you were in a rush to get to class at the Harvard Kennedy School, or you were trying to locate your lift because you're too lazy to figure out the T. No judgment. No judgment here. But if you had time to peek through the windows, you'd see the coolest little comic book shop. It's owned by a man named Tony Davis. Tony is super great. So is Jabari Sellers. Jabari is a student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education who I overheard talking about Superman of all things. Jabari is really passionate about comics. He's really passionate about teaching. And I was thinking that it might be kind of cool if Jabari and Tony had a conversation. And it was pretty cool, wasn't it? It was totally great. It was magic. And it wasn't just any room. We actually had Tony and Jabari meet up together at Million Year Picnic. So we did this interview 
in the comic book shop after hours. If you're curious about what that looked like, please check out our Instagram at Palette Podcast. We posted a bunch of awesome photos of the interview. But just an FYI, because we recorded it in the comic book shop, you're going to hear some extra noise. Footsteps, the door, shuffling in the building. It was really important to us to have the ambiance of the comic book shop, and it was so fun to record there. Just another little note on facts for this segment. Tony and Jabari drop so much knowledge so rapidly that doing facts for this episode would mean that we were interrupting them every other sentence. So to remedy this, we created a comprehensive blog post with links to each of the wonderful comics, books, films, authors, everything that these two geniuses mentioned during this interview. If you hear something that you're interested in or curious about, we recommend taking a look at this blog post or walking yourself down to the millionaire picnic and talking to Tony because he'll hook it up. Let's get to this interview. I have a feeling you guys are going to love it. My name is Jabari Sellers. I am a Master of Ed candidate with, uh, within the language and literacy strand at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And my name is Tony Davis, a uh, longtime comic book fan, and I own a comic book store in Harvard Square, Cambridge, Mass., called The Million Year Picnic, which is arguably one of the two or three oldest existing stores in the country. He forgot to say that it's also one of the dopest uh, stores. It's, it's one of the messiest right now. <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do, but thank you. No, no doubt. Listen, just try to speak truth. So, um, one of the bigger aspects of this of this podcast of this particular episode is looking at Afrofuturism, and it's interesting because we are going to receive um, a nice mainstream showcase of Afrofuturism come February in the form of Ryan Coogler's The Black Panther. Tell me something. What do you know about Wakanda? And it's interesting when it comes to comic books within um, Afrofuturism, the big the big staple within comic books that's related to Afrofuturism might very well be the Black Panther and the history of the Black Panther. First of all, very few characters who are of color go back as far as the Black Panther. Right. Uh, you know, as somebody who's been a comic book fan for almost 50 years, it's just interesting thinking back what a complete wasteland it was. Mm in the late 60s through the 70s and 80s. And truthfully now, it's still, you know, there isn't necessarily an abundance of African-American characters. But Marvel was quite forward-looking and uh, quite fortunate to get, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates to come in and write the book and sort of completely revitalize and rethink some of the things going on with the character. And also, let's be honest, I mean, Stan, from the beginning, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's work around Wakanda and the Black Panther definitely spoke of a certain Afrofuturism. Yes. Um, it certainly was a huge deviation from the reality for most, well, no, all nations and kingdoms in Africa. And certainly Kirby gave it that sort of futuristic look that was uniquely his way before we even started talking about Afrofuturism. And whereas other works within, I would maybe we consider it a genre, an artistic movement, a sociocultural idea or ideology within Afrofuturism, what's interesting about Black Panther is that rather than operating on the premise that the current 
conditions of America or the current conditions of the world, we go back in time in many ways to develop the foundation for Black Panther. Back in time and changing um, the history of black people on this planet. And so, for those of you all who don't know, the larger concept of Black Panther is immersed within the idea of what happens if black people, if African nations do not have to suffer the pains, the degradation, the exploitation, and oppression that comes from colonization, comes from tribal warfare, and comes from the overall oppressive um, abstract that is white supremacist power structures. And in here we find um, Black Panther, or rather the nation of Wakanda, the home of Black Panther, to be the most technologically sound and technologically advanced nation in the world. So we, it begs the question of what happens when black people are allowed to develop, allowed to be unfettered, literally and figuratively. And rather than using the current foundation or the current condition in various countries as the foundation, we go back and we change history for Black Panther. And we examine a world that perhaps is less oppressive and what could happen in a world less oppressive. What's amazing to me is I would not necessarily think of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby as being the two most progressively <laughs> right. visionary uh, comic creators, particularly around concepts of race uh, and culture. Um, but they did create this world back in the 1960s of, of an African nation that has never been conquered, that has full control and has had full control of the development of its culture, the development of its resources. And beyond the fact that they have these natural resources, there's that intellectual resource that they've developed. And the fact that they're presented in the 1960s as having the most advanced society in the world, which just completely runs against the grain of almost everything else that was going on in comics. Absolutely, and it taps into the history of technologies and, and mathematics within the continent of Africa. So we're tapping into the history of, say, algebra and the development of algebra within the continent. We're tapping into the ways in which um, the African peoples differed when it comes to their societal development um, from, say, our, you know, brothers, perhaps, you know, in, in like Caucasus Mountains or the Caucasus Caves. So even though it seems like this is coming from just a nice, I wonder if, it's still grounded within the history of the world. And in that we get so many great stories that speak to the greatness and, and also the humanity of black people. And it speaks to maybe an essential part of Afrofuturism, wherein black people, and I am for the sake of this conversation, using black people to encompass all people who are um, descendants of the African diaspora, um, with a focus on melanin as well as just their connections culturally. Just wanted to put that out there. But what you get in this story in particular, especially with Coates writing it, is you get the humanization of the black experience. Additionally, you get the fleshing out of what it means to be black as opposed to operating with this monolithic depiction of what it means. Whether it's the sense of black stoicism within the black man or this sense of rage or anger or sassiness within the black woman. And I think one thing that, that um, permeates many examples of Afrofuturism is the three-dimensional depiction of blackness. In so many of the depictions of blacks within and black culture within comic books, 
one, most of the creators were not people of color. But two, just, and, and this is true of the world, that so many of the things that people are reacting to, so much of what they've internalized, even their anger, even the stoicism, has to do with reacting to things outside of their own culture, with the oppression, with, you know, racism, with bigotry, with economic and social deprivation in societies that's institutionalized. So Wakanda sort of gives you that, that sort of clean slate where you can sort of talk about what happens when people of color are bouncing off other people of color. And you're still going to have conflicts because they're human beings. Mm. You're still going to have issues of generations, issues of uh, gender, issues of sexuality. All sorts of things are still going to be there in terms of conflict. But this sort of larger piece of European slash American oppression is gone. It, with the exception of the fact that Wakanda is always aware of the fact that there's this world outside mm -hmm. that could threaten it. I came into into comic books, I guess in many ways, or, or in ways similar to a lot of my friends. Actually, not through comic books. I came in, I came in through you know WB and Fox cartoons. Sixty seconds and counting to get WB. Which means, oh yeah, we're late. <laughs> <laughs> I was most definitely that young kid, that little that little boy in his underrooms eating sugar cereal, watching X-Men in the 90s, Batman the Animated Series, Static Shock in the early 2000s. This was the scene earlier tonight in Gotham's Bayside District, where police cornered Time Code, an outlaw physicist who planned to make a fortune by helping wanted criminals escape to the future of all places. Unfortunately for Time Code, he couldn't see into his own future, a future that included Batman and his young friends. His young friends? I don't have a name anymore? Get me my toolkit, boy wonder. And one of the things that drew me to Black Panther was a sense of identity validation. But as I found myself looking deeper and deeper into black superheroes, I noticed the ways in which the depictions of black superheroes, um, maybe not necessarily nowadays, but earlier on in my lifetime, they we're on two poles. And I wish I made this up, but it's, but it's not. It's actually from um, a UGA professor, Jonathan Gale, who talked about the ways in which, especially black men in comics and black superheroes were only able to fit two particular roles. They could either be Shaft. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right. Or they could be Sidney Poitier can't turn on a television set anywhere without seeing those kids dancing. And I say the colored kids are better than the white kids. But there's an explanation for that. It's our dancing and it's our music. We brought it here. I mean, you can do the Watusi, but we are the Watusi, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so in this case, uh, Jonathan Gale talks about how many of our superheroes either had to become the epitome of would-be black perfection, and oftentimes that meant having a closer proximity to the expectations or the um, modeling by way of white supremacy, i.e. respectability, or they were depicted as this rebellious badass, oftentimes derived from black exploitation. So you either had your Black Panther, who was this stoic, I can beat up everyone, I am smarter than everybody, or you had your Luke Cage, you had your... 
um, Jonathan Stewart, you had your early Jefferson Pierce and Black Lightning. So you had only these two versions of what it meant to be a black male. Yeah, well, it was, and pretty little of that. So I came into the comic books um, through something, a big thing in the African-American community, which is the barber shop. Absolutely. So back when I would go with my dad, late 60s, early 70s, to the barber shop, on a Saturday you might have to sit there and wait for an hour. And men, you know, there's sports on television and guys talking about stuff, but as a kid you might get bored with that. So we would go to the little corner store, little drug store, and I would buy, at that point, Uncle Scrooge, uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich. Not even superhero comics. Mm. Um, but it's funny, because now to look back on some of the, even the Uncle Scrooge adventures, just when the ducks would go abroad and, and, and sort of try to relate to people from other countries and other cultures, uh, it's cringeworthy, you know, mm. now... Try, having tried to read some of that to my son when he was five or six. Um, but as I got into superhero comics, I mean, literally, the Black Panther is not African-American. He's right. African. He, he is a Sidney Poitier. He is a Harry Belafonte. He is a prince. He is royalty. He is very well-educated. And he sort of, you know, has come from Africa, and he's suddenly faced by all these problems that exist here in America. And then on, on the flip side, as he said, there's Luke Cage, who has broken out of prison. His powers are the result of an experiment done on him while in prison. Um, and so he literally has to fly, he has to go below the radar, because he fears at any moment he can be arrested and sent back to jail. And even with the Falcon, who started off with a, with a different origin, right. later on they... You know, retconned it, and they made him again a former criminal who was on the run. Um, so, literally, there was nothing in between. There wasn't sort of just a middle class African American who became a superhero. You either had to be royalty from abroad, or you were, as you said, Shaft. I mean, Luke Cage was was clearly that sort of Shaft inspired figure. Yeah, absolutely. Good old Sweet Christmas and everything. Sweet Christmas. I mean, it's not until, I would contend, it's not until David Walker, who's currently writing Luke Cage, do we really ex explore some aspects of the prison industrial complex. It's not until um, Kyle Baker, Kyle Baker, um, writes Truth, do we make the <laughs> connection between, say, the Tuskegee syphilis trials and maybe the super soldier serum in, um, in Captain America. So, yeah. Because uh, uh, Marvel, I think, is already, they just uh, got rid of the, the gentleman who's been the editor-in-chief the last few yeah. years, who's responsible for bringing Ta-Nehisi Coates mm -hmm. in to, to write uh, Black Panther, who's responsible for a number of the, the sort of outreach things that they've done. They just replaced him. Yeah. And I think a large part of that is that they feel like their traditional sales aren't working. Um, but, you know just here on ground level, to sort of see the excitement that people have about Black Panther and the way they're talking about it, not like an Avengers movie or Thor movie, but it's something that could be truly special and spectacular and truly meaningful. On an academic level, what you're talking about, honestly, is the practice of differentiation. Um, it would seem that 
these publishers, um, big publishers or small publishers, are recognizing in the same way a teacher recognizes that one lesson plan doesn't fit every single student, that one story cannot resonate with an entire audience. And it's interesting because that's kind of how I've, I've gotten into comics as an educator in an attempt to make sure that the various identities of my students are validated by way of mediums that are oftentimes a bit more accepting and a bit more inclusive as opposed to the more canonical works of classic literature. Well, I was explaining to someone, uh, talking with uh, a mom at, at my son's school today about your, your techniques. I was just saying, you know, this idea that you, all, you need to climb the wall when there are already gates there. Yeah. You know, if you can take your, ch your, your kids through a gate that is film or video or graphic novels to introduce them to these basic building blocks of being able to take apart literature, to understand things, to know what symbolism is, to know what archetypes are, uh, to learn those basic building blocks that will illuminate their ability to interpret anything in life. And then you can go on once they've got those building blocks and you can look at literature. But not everybody can go straight there. And the fact that we continue to try to pull everyone not just to the same destination, but the same route, um, it just doesn't work for everyone. I mean, it's the, it's the futility of familiarity, right? If all I've done as an educator or as a teacher has been, you know, reading these very old, great, but very old novels and these old stories and these older articles and the only authors that I've read are these very, very classic, oftentimes white and male authors, then my expectation is, well, everyone should love these or everyone should read this way. But what I've found is that you can make a greater impact on a student's desire to read, on a student's overall literacy and reading comprehension if you, in many ways, tap into that student's sense of self, tap into that student's interest, and through that way, perhaps introduce that student to not only the classic works that oftentimes within the classroom are demanded um, by way of principles or scope and sequence or mandated curriculums that you have to teach them, but you're also introducing them to a different medium. So one example that I had was in my classroom, I was made to teach The Lord of the Flies. Good old William Golding, Lord of the Flies. And it's a great book. It has some very deep meanings about human capability and culpability. But to my eighth graders, to my ninth graders, those students that I taught, it was just a bunch of, it was a story about a bunch of white boys who got stranded on an island and decided to turn their prep school uniforms into loincloths and go feral. You know, doing their best in, in impression of Tarzan. Because they aren't able to really tap into what it means to be an allegory. So what do we do? We hide the vegetables in the cake. We introduce <laughs> students to an allegory in a different medium. And therein lies using, say, X-Men. I'm getting my students to look at X-Men and answer the question of who in our society would be deemed a mutant. And they're able to make connections between um, Dr. King and Malcolm X with, say, Professor X and Magneto, or the ideas of Bayard Rustin, or the ideas of Harvey Milk, when it comes to how you operate within your identity. 
all of that work is the same kind of symbolic analysis, the same kind of character analysis that you're expecting the students to do with William Golding's age-old novel. It's around 50, 60-plus-odd years. But we're doing it through superheroes. We're doing it through these caped characters, these cowled characters that many of these students have grown up with or at the very least are familiar with via the movies that are coming out every single summer. Well, and then you told me once you did that with the comic books, you were able then to go and read Lord of the Flies with Absolutely. them. Absolutely. So then it becomes this thing of, it's almost as if I'm, I'm a new age LeVar Burton. Ooh. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. Let me not act like I am LeVar Burton, but I'm doing my best impression of LeVar Burton when I'm saying, well, if you like this book or if you like these concepts within X-Men, then now let's take a look at Lord of the Flies. Now I can promise you that even though it is about a bunch of white boys stranded on an island, you're going to be able to do the same kind of literary excavation that you did with X-Men. And I've done this on the lower level when it comes to middle school and the early years of high school. And I've been able to also do it on a higher level with juniors and seniors. Not necessarily with X-Men, but finding parallels between these great comic books and the classic novels that they influence. For example, I've been able to teach biblical literature through, say, um, Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. If we're analyzing the story of The Killing Joke, which in many ways is a story about the moral compass of Commissioner Gordon and how he can either sway to, to the side of justice, which would be Batman, or the side of chaos with the Joker. In many ways, that is the book of Job within, <laughs> within the Bible. If I look at, say, the relationship between Cyclops, Wolverine, and Professor X in the X-Men, those are stories that are clearly influenced by, say, the parable of the prodigal son, or the larger idea of maybe Cain and Abel. So what we're doing here is we are connecting the classic with the contemporary. I'm getting my students to read Milestone Comics. I'm getting my students to read Icon and his sidekick, sidekick Rocket. At the same time, they're reading the debates between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. I'm getting them to read Hardware, which is another Milestone comic book. At the same time, they're reading Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, and they're drawing these connections, they're making these parallels. What we tend to do within education is we assume that we can only do it one way. But in all actuality, we can use this pop culture, we can use the trendy things that our kids are into to make these connections. We can get them to examine, um, say, something like Road to Perdition or Lone Wolf and Cub or Moribito. These are animes, these are manga, these are um, translations of anime and manga to look at, say, A Hero's Journey or the idea of a caregiver who has to adopt this um, abandoned child. These are archetypes. These are motifs that are ancient in a good way. But for many kids, they are not accessible because they don't resonate to their interest. They don't resonate to who they are. Because nine times out of ten, our creators and the protagonists within these stories are white, male, straight, or completely unrelated to what they, what our students have seen, what our students experience, and who our students are. Well, I think there's a tendency sometimes for us to uh, anoint with this mystical power and greatness um, things of the past mm -hmm. that aren't truly great, but to pretend that they weren't of the time. You know, Shakespeare plays weren't classic literature. Shakespeare plays were popular entertainment. 
And if Shakespeare were alive today, Shakespeare might be making movies. Shakespeare might be making vid videos for YouTube. Um, Shakespeare would be writing in a vernacular that was true of the time. He wouldn't be writing in language that was three or four or five hundred years outdated. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't still connect to Shakespeare and connect to the language that he uses, but what it means to me is we shouldn't invalidate things that are of the time and sort of say that they must sort of bow before things that are older. And the other thing I would say about comics and graphic novels is that I think they have their own particular power. And so I think they're a great tool for connecting with other things, as you, you know, with literature, with biblical studies, with all the things that you've talked about. But I think they have the, this power in their own right because of the way that they combine visual elements with words. And sort of, a, I think my favorite example would be Persepolis, Marjan Satrapi. I think she is able to synthesize decades of Iranian history and sometimes centuries of Persian history in a couple of pages in a way that would be very difficult to do in a straight verbal book. Absolutely. And she does it in a way that's in, very captivating, told within a, a larger story of her own childhood, um, in a way in which I think younger readers come, come away thinking, having learned so much about the political and social aspects of Iran and that section of the world without even realizing it. Mm. And it's just done effortlessly on so many different levels. Now, you can do that in a novel, but I can hand Persepolis probably to most 10, 11, 12-year-olds. I couldn't necessarily hand a novel or nonfiction book of the same, with the same sort of information and expect that they would be interested in it at all. Mm. Well, here's what's fascinating, because in my studies at Hugsy, we're reviewing the multiple intelligences and um, the learning styles from Howard Gardner. We're looking at John T. Guthrie's analysis of motivation in connection to literacy. We're going into like deep dives of Lisa Delpit's writing about the self and about you know the skin that we're in. What's interesting is, in the grand scheme, what these articles, what these writers, what these professors are asking us to consider within our own lesson plans as educators are multi-differentiated lessons, lessons that tap into different perspectives, that respect and acknowledge different perspectives, um, multimodality when it comes to the delivery of information, um, and in and of itself, that serves as an act of scaffolding or a model of scaffolding. With all of those things that are required, in a good way, required of good educators or good educational systems, it's interesting that a tool that has all of those things in it is oftentimes looked at like a child's toy. If we look at the ways graphic novels or single-issue serial comic books provide different forms of narrative, different forms of delivery of information, the use of intentional, like, motivational um, strategies, piquing the interest of kids by way of the art, by way of the popularity of many of these stories and many of these characters, what you have in the hands of, say, the typical comic book nerd, or what you have in the hands of the kid who is flipping through his or her Naruto um, 
manga left and right or is flipping through old issues of Shonen Jump, you have a tool that can be used to expand a student's literacy in the form of vocabulary exposure or vocabulary adaptation and the more frequent use of reading strategies, all of which are pillars of literacy, all of, all of which are pillars of further understanding of what's being read. And yet, when I have conversations with new teachers or teachers who have not yet heard me preach the gospel of comic books, there's always this hesitation because the medium has been given or yeah, has been given this very interesting reputation within academics, save for the, the works of maybe Marjan Satrapi in Persepolis, or Spiegelman in Mouse, or maybe um, Jin Luang Yun in, say, American Born Chinese or Boxes and Saints. Many of these other stories are seen as, I guess, too surface to warrant true literary analysis when that is just completely the opposite of what I see when I'm reading these things and when I'm teaching these things to my students. Yeah, part of it is the American comic book industry was sort of juvenilized in the 1950s. Series of Senate subcommittee hearings, uh, the closure of a number of publishers, the, the comic... Uh, the comic code authority comes into place. Good old seduction of the innocent. Right, yeah. right. And, and what's interesting, well, we could talk for hours Absolutely. about seduction of the innocent, because the, the gentleman who, Frederick Wortham, Wortham yeah. actually was a very brilliant guy with every, in most regards. Comic books, he just had blinders on. Um, he actually wrote a, a paper on the effects of segregation on African-American children that was used as in one of the lower court decisions that went on to be uh, Brown versus Board of Education. The case that came to be known as Brown versus Board of Education was actually the name given to five separate cases that were heard by the U.S. Supreme Court about the issue of segregation in public schools. Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Briggs versus Elliott, Davis versus the Board of Education of Prince Edward County, Boiling versus Sharp. Gebert versus Ethel. Each case is different, but the issue of constitutionality of state-sponsored segregation in public schools was common to all these cases. The last one, 1954's Brown versus Board of Education, is the one we're all familiar with and often think of as an overwhelmingly positive decision where the segregation of schools was deemed unconstitutional. It's a complicated case but we feel that it's best addressed in this quote from Zora Neale Hurston. If there are not adequate Negro schools in Florida, then there is some residual, some inherent unchangeable quality in white schools, impossible to duplicate anywhere else, then I am the first to insist that Negro children of Florida be allowed to share this boon. But if there are adequate Negro schools and prepared instructors and instruction, then there is nothing different except the presence of white people. For this reason, I regard the ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court as insulting rather than honoring my race. The decision clearly had a lot of complicated ramifications, including the firing of thousands upon thousands of black educators. A 1994 study by Hudson and Holmes discusses the impact on black teachers in the teaching profession. Quote, in 1954, the year of the Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, 
approximately 82,000 African-American teachers were responsible for the education of the nation's 2 million African-American public school students. A decade later, over 38,000 black teachers and administrators had lost their positions in 17 southern and border states. Between 1975 and 1985, the number of students majoring in education declined by 66%, and another 21,515 black teachers lost their jobs between 1984 and 1989. The ramifications of Brown versus Board of Education are obviously quite complex. If you want to find out more, check out an article posted on our website, palletpodcast.com. Back to the interview. How did you come to comic books, not only just as the interest um, within your childhood, but like this is your life? <laughs> Oh man, when you when you put it that way, it, it, in a dope way, it's not like, <laughs> oh man, this is your life. There's no there's no question mark after that. There's like a you know that definitive exclamation point. Some mornings I wake up, there's the question mark <laughs> is definitely there. Uh, what was funny, I just uh, you know, I sort of had this period when I was a small child of liking comic books at a certain level, and then it started one summer. I went to visit my grandparents in Washington D.C. and actually got them to take me to what was sort of a comic book store for the first time. And that's when I started getting very heavily into the superhero comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I grew up, there was Julia, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek. Excuse me, Captain Kirk. Yes, sir. Mr. Scott. What a charming negress. Oh, forgive me, my dear. I know that in my time, some use that term as a description of property. But why should I object to that term, sir? You see, in our century, we've learned not to fear words. May I present our communications officer, Lieutenant Uhura? The foolishness of my century had me apologizing where no offense was given. We've each learned to be delighted with what we are. Bill Cosby and I spy. Um, I guess if you went back earlier, there'd been Eddie Rochester Anderson on The Jack Benny Show. That was pretty much it, other than Ricky Ricardo, on, you know, for people of color on television. Um, movies weren't a lot better, you know, so, so maybe moving into the 70s, where you started to get Sounder, and uh, Sha- even Shaft, yeah. and Cleopatra Jones, and the Casino of Gold. So the fact that there weren't a ton of people of color in comics depicted in the comics, and of course at that point I had no idea who was writing and drawing them, um, wasn't that unusual. That was just the way the larger culture was. And to have stopped reading comics because of that, I might as well have stopped going to the movies and watching television as well. Um, for me, the, the things that sort of normalized at least being black in that experience was that when I first started buying comic books, getting into superhero books, I was going to this little black bookstore in South Central Los Angeles, Hall's Bookstore. So there was an African-American proprietor with his little spinner of comics in a, a bigger bookstore. That's where I was buying my comics. You know, I came from a family where reading was always encouraged by both my mother and father. And there wasn't this sort of high, low literature. Ba- mm-hmm. you know, if you were reading, you were reading. Um, there was never any burden of shame there. So so I'm buying my stuff from Mr. Hall, 
And I find this bookstore up on Hollywood Boulevard, actually I found four stores on or off Hollywood Boulevard, but one called Cherokee Books, which was an antiquarian bookstore, beautiful leather-bound books on two different floors, a mezzanine of nothing but comic books. And on the weekends, a kid named Bruce, who was probably about 16, African-American, going to Dorsey High, ran the comic book section. So I would go up as this little kid, and Bruce would, like, give me free stuff. And So my comic book buying for most of my formative years in Los Angeles, the people I'm buying comics for, from are African-American. So I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling uncomfortable around that. And then when I got here to college, yeah, the comic book store was a place you would sort of come that was very different from hanging out in the dorm. And I was here one day, and I just hung out here so, so much, they offered me a job. Nice. And I figured selling comic books was better than cleaning bathrooms. <laughs> so um, I started working here, and then when I got out of school, I thought, I'll do this for a year while I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. And I somehow never left. But now there's like something else I'd like to do, which is, you know, I'd like to, to, to really help foster diversity, particularly... As I said, when I go on you know, these news sites or into these chat rooms, and I just see all of the blowback, I just see all of the resistance to, well, and we sort of see it across the country, to, to the reality that we are a diverse nation, yeah. and that everyone should have a seat at the table. Um, I actually have a question, yeah. Tony, now that you've kind of talked about um, digital, because... To me, what's fascinating about comics is that kind of pre-immensely visual culture, which we have online, looking at our phones all the time, it had it added this visual element to to reading, right? It's it's mm -hmm. and that's as somebody who wasn't really introduced to comics when I was young, that to me is the biggest not obstacle, but difference when I'm trying to read a graphic novel, just kind of getting used to panels and kind of revisualizing the story in a totally different way than both a movie or a book um, and kind of being that in between. Um, but then, and now that we're in a very digital, fully visual culture, it's kind of retro going back towards just regular old books or regular print magazines. Um, and so I'm curious how, for each of you, because I'm sure you both have different experiences with this, how comics translate online. I think for just me as someone who, who made the transition from loving nothing but give me just single issues, and then I was like, okay, single issues are cool, but I'll also introduce and I'll allow for... <laughs> Uh, trade paperbacks, which would be the collection of single issues, and I'm now looking and reading more, and I'm introducing my students more to the digital story and digital storytelling. Um, what's been great for a lot of stories, what's been great for a lot of um, digitalized comics, is that they do a great job of not just simply serving as a PDF of a comic book. Mm. It's more than just, okay, we've taken a picture of a page and now you need to do your own zooming in. And because it's a bit more interactive, um, it allows for it allows for students to to access more information in ways that they are more familiar. And we've done this in classrooms, not with comic books, but we've done this in classrooms all the time. Whether it's, oh, use your social media to 
uh, complete this homework assignment or we're going to do a meme interpretation for things. So for me, the going digital within the comic book realm and the way that I'm using it in my classroom, it's actually been helpful. It's been a bit more helpful um, because students do have to adapt to the way a panel and the way sequential art is read. And I can tell them that it's still up, down, left, right for the most part till I'm blue in the face, but it helps when, say, the digital version of the comic book singles out a particular panel, and then you can swipe to another panel, or it'll pop out. Um, I think maybe a year or so ago, or maybe it's it's fairly recent, uh, the Black Eyed Peas, the, art, the um, music artist of Black Eyed Peas, came out with a comic book in with in collaboration with Marvel Comics called Masters of the Sun. And so what happens with this comic book, it's not only just on paper a um, you know a book, I think it's, it's only in, in trade form or in hardcover form, there's actually an app that's connected to it. And so students are, or readers are able to download the app and then they can put that um, their phone next to the books next to these pages and those pages then come alive or they can have that story downloaded and the pages then come alive so what happens with comic books um, even before you go digital you are operating with a with a literary work that is actually at the nexus of just straight prose and the um, and motion picture or at least that's what um, Alan Moore ended up talking about how this is almost like the the middle part or, or, the, or the midpoint of the motion picture film and the um, work of literature. But when we become digitized, it's just far more accessible for students who are still, understandably so, turned off by yet another book, regardless of what's in that book. Um, so I found it to be very helpful as opposed to maybe like a possible hindrance. So um, being old, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I do think I, I remember Will Eisner once describing that you know when he started off when he was a young man, um, he wanted to be a fine artist and actually applied to art school in New York and it didn't work out, and so then he thought he wanted to be a, a writer, write novels, and he realized that his writing wasn't good enough for that. But he said he discovered that he could take the, that visual invention that he had put it together with his writing skill, and in his words, two ineptitudes formed ineptitude. Um, and I particularly got to see, well, as manga started influencing mm -hmm. comics, and Frank Miller came along doing Daredevil, just how cinematic comic books could be. Um, just how they could read, probably the same way that uh, when they do, people like Akira Kurosawa, would do storyboard an entire film. You need to porter the idea of the infinite canvas, as he called it. The ability online to do, digitally to do just about anything. Not to, to be able to incorporate music, to be able to incorporate sound, not to be trapped by panels, dimensions. It doesn't work as well for me. I, don't, I, I have to admit, I don't read much in the way of comics online. But at the same time, I, I sort of understand the excitement and I understand the way in which new generations are coming at it in a very different way. But for us right now, I would say that we communicate very well, we still connect very well with an older audience. We connect very well with the younger audience. You know, kids like my son who's 10, 8, 12, this wall of books behind me, 
they're in love with them. But it's sort of that 16 to maybe mid-20s. That's where I think the comic book industry has the hardest time now, sort of connecting with people. I, I mean, already with Black Panther, it has reached an audience well beyond the traditional comic book oh, yeah. audience. It's amazing for a character who had only a couple of times briefly had his own series of Marvel comics, had been a secondary or supporting character, that at least in our store, Coates started writing the book and Black Panther became our best-selling comic book. And it's still, by far, our best-selling Marvel comic book. That just goes to show the power of when you, you take someone like Coates and combine him with the medium. I wanted to talk about that, that fandom um, because... First of all, there's a there's a geek factor that we have not really mentioned here. <laughs> I don't want to be rude, but there is a a nerditude that 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 is associated with this medium. Right. Right? I'm not crazy when I say that. <laughs> um also, you know, we we're talking a lot about the fact that fortunately in the recent history some things have started to really dramatically change in terms of the characters that we're seeing, the narratives that we're seeing, even who's creating them or who's owning the companies that are publishing them um, and their popular success. But there's not a ton of female characters. And when you guys were growing up at different times, there were still predominantly white male characters, right? I'm, I'm curious... You know, all of those things, and Tony, you mentioned the age bracket of 16 to 25, can block a person out. Absolutely. Or, you know, even if they're in love with it as a child, they get older and they're like, wait a second, this is no longer my idol, or this is no longer something that I think is cool or that I want to be associated with. You know, how come you didn't fall out? And how come, you know, what's the what's the appeal when, when you're not necessarily growing up seeing yourself in the characters? There is, I would say, if there were on my journey of being a nerd, and I'm going to tell you something, I am a nerd. You throw that word at me, madam, and I will pick it up and I will pin it on. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, like, my worst Jimmy Smiths because he was on the uh, West Wing. But in any case, I would say... There was a time when I did feel like I had this falling out with um, comics because I felt as if I did not fit into the comic book culture. Um, not naming any um, any names as far as like you know comic shops and things of that nature, but there are times um, that those who have been ostracized socially, those who have been made to feel like their hobbies and their interests are always going to be on the peripheral and are silly or all these things, there's a tendency when they have a sense of self and when they're together to be just as exclusive as their experiences were. Mm. And so there were times when I um, had a resurgence. So like I was a kid, like I said, I grew up with the cartoons. I grew up with the action figures. And I mean, for example, I, I am a Ninja Turtle fan. It took me until I was like 15 or 16 until I realized, oh, wait a minute, this was a comic book before it was like my favorite Saturday morning cartoon. And so when I tried to do um, a deeper dive into comic books, I went to local comic book shops and I felt pushed back because I did not know the exact issue. I did not know the page that the quote was on. And there was this sense of you need to prove yourself worthy of being in the inner sanctum that is 
the nerdiness. And that can be a turnoff. And oftentimes, <laughs> in those spaces, what's associated with those spaces is it's just, you know, no girls allowed, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Just a bunch of guys. Very little regard is given to stories that don't feature white male superheroes. Or very little regard is, is, is given for stories that aren't in the superhero genre. And so there was a time when I felt as if this was just not for me. I had trouble finding stories and characters that weren't always about white men. And it wasn't until later on when I discovered like so many people who felt like they weren't a part of that had also joined in. Um, and that was when I, when I was in D.C. And I like fell in love and, and got part of a family within this, this, this uh, comic book shop called Phantom Comics. It was just all about bringing in people who have been otherized so many times in in their lives. But the geek factor is there. The geek factor is something that that you should embrace because I think in many ways, while most people wouldn't necessarily say that they associate or they identify as whether a nerd or a geek, they do or we have all felt at times when we have been on the outside of dominant culture, we've been on the outside of what is perceived to be the good or the cool. And yes, I had to do some searches for comic books that resonated with me when it came to race as, you know, a young black boy, when it came to sexuality as a young black boy who was coming into realizing that he was gay, and a young black boy who was looking for stories that involved people who were looking for themselves and searching for themselves. So I do, you cannot disregard the ways that this potentially inclusive kind of community and this potentially inclusive genre and style of writing and style of storytelling can be very much exclusive and no but and within all of those problems or perhaps despite all those problems I have been able to use comic books in my classroom to to resonate with my students identity and Lord knows it has allowed me to get that sense of identity validation just by reading on my own. I'm rocking contacts now, but if I wasn't, I would definitely be that guy <laughs> with, you know, pushing his his glasses. No up, shade, up Jabari. No, 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 I know it's all But yeah, you know, and and I and if I if I may, in my classroom, I'm coming from Ron Brown um, College Prep, which is a DC public school, all boys, and I had students who just truly equated all things with regard to literary exploration or academic or intellectual curiosity, they treated that or they saw that as the territory that is exclusive for their white counterparts. So this is a school of all uh, black and brown boys. And with that belief that academic curiosity and intellectual exploration and things of that nature were white things, many of my students would tell me, not with shame or frustration, but in many ways with pride of, I don't read. I'm not reading anything, Sellers. But when I bring in a comic book, or when I bring in manga that is an adaptation or that has been adapted into an anime that they watched, it goes from arms folded, I'm not going to read, to I'm flipping through these pages, to I'm asking Mr. Sellers a couple questions, to okay, now I'm going to his classroom um, during lunch and I'm geeking out. And it's interesting the ways in which these identities, especially, well, not especially, but I'm only speaking my experience, the ways that these like beautiful examples of healthy fanaticism within literature, because we're talking about literature here, have been quashed within our kids. And I saw it prominently 
within our kids of color. And it's amazing the moment they have seen, the moment they see someone who looks like them say, I too listen to this music, I too watch these shows, this anime, I read this manga, I read these comic books, that's when they decided, okay, it's okay for me to admit that I love this literature, it's okay for me to admit that I love reading, and I love this academic exploration. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of work to do as a, I don't want to monolithically put us there, but as a comic book community, we have a lot of work to do, and we have to recognize the ways in which comic books, graphic novels, and sequential storytelling has allowed so many kids and so many, um, you know, avid readers kind of take off that mask. Oftentimes, that is often associated with misogyny, with toxic masculinity, with what a cool person is, um, and that, and that's the beautiful thing. We want to thank Yatasha Womack for joining us today. To find out more about Yatasha her amazing books, including incredible comic books and fantastic films. Follow her on Twitter. It's at Yatasha Womack. That's spelled Y-T-A-S-H-A-W-O-M-A-C-K. Or look her up on YouTube. She's an amazing speaker. Also, Tony. Tony Davis of The Million Year Picnic in Harvard Square, located at 99 Mount Auburn Street, Thank you, thank you, thank you for being so generous and amazing. And thank you, Jabari, for bringing your immense knowledge of comic books and telling us how to incorporate those into the classrooms. We really appreciate it. Nima, do you think Jabari would notice if we sat in on the back of his class and pretended to be his students? You know, Joss, I was just thinking about that. We have very youthful faces, so I think we could pull it off. And our listeners can't dispute that since we're just voices on the internet to them. Yeah, y'all just have to trust us. It's all true, though. It is. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the amazing technical support of Anthony DiBartolo and Jerry McDonald from the Media Production Center at Harvard. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Also, Chaz Van Queen is the mastermind behind our incredible music. You can find out more information about him, all of our guests, and the master fact sheet we created for Tony and Jabari at palettepodcast.com. This podcast would not be possible without all of you, our listeners, tuning in. Thank you so, so much. We adore each and every single one of you. But not as much as we adore each other, right, Nima? Not even close. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> even with the space puns, you're really quite lovely, Nima. I can't say enough about you. Joss, make a space pun for us. I love you to the moon and back. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. This has been The Palette, Episode 2, Season 3. Tune in next time. Bye, y'all. Bye.